thank you for such a warm introduction. Thank you for the music, the prayer, the scripture. And good morning, Asbury Theological Seminary. Yeah! Okay, that was weak. Good morning, Asbury Theological Seminary. Thank you. I am so, so excited to be here, and I am so, so honored to have been invited to be a part of the Scholars Who Preach uh, series, and I'm even more excited that I get to look out on this room and see friends and colleagues who I've journeyed with for more than 20 years. And I can't linger on that one or I will start crying and that will really mess up the sermon for the morning. So I bring you warm greetings from Westmont College in sunny Southern California where all of the stereotypes that you have heard rumor of are mostly true. <laughs> yeah, uh, students do indeed come to class year-round in their shorts and flip-flops. Infinity pools are a thing, and study breaks where I teach often involve a quick trip down to Butterfly Beach to sneak a surf in before the afternoon class. These things are all true. And in addition, skateboards are a legal means of transportation in the bike lane. It's all true. Um, <clears throat> it is true that when the temperature drops to a uh, blizzard-like conditions, 68, 67 degrees, my students will put on their Patagonia puffers in order <laughs> to endure the uh, difficult conditions, but still those shorts and flip-flops will endure all the way through February. So yeah, um, all of these things are true in the wonderful world of SoCal. Um, as you have heard, Asbury Theological Seminary is, is in many ways home to me. This is my first full-time post as a professor. Ruth Ann Reese and I were hired in the same cohort. Bill Arnold and Lawson Stone did that hiring. I was on the committee that hired John Cook. It's all my fault, just letting you know. <laughs> uh, at the end of my first year here, I flew back to Massachusetts to defend my dissertation. Yeah, our babies were born here. Um, in fact, uh, on my way up what used to be those stairs, in late August of 2002, 38 and a half weeks pregnant, yeah, Jessica's gonna love this story, I actually tripped on the way up those stairs. But when you're 38 and a half weeks pregnant, your belly is so far out there, and you know, babies bounce, uh, I was back up in a nanosecond, <laughs> but the collective response of 300 people in this room, oh my gosh, that went down in history. Yeah, okay, so let me say out loud that Wilmore, with all of its sometimes ridiculous and wonderful particularities, will always be home to me and to my family, and I'm so grateful that you had me here. So, let the conversations begin. Um, our topic this morning is wisdom, specifically a proverb or two. And as you likely know, every society has their proverbs, yeah? A stitch in time saves nine. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Or as Asbury's own Tapiwa Mucherera taught me, if you find a turtle in a tree, 
you know he didn't get there by himself. <laughs> Ponder that one for a while. Um, the one that we're going to focus on this morning, also a proverb, brief memorizable statements of truth. Yes, that will be on the quiz afterwards. Um, I have two, two proverbs. One comes from Koheleth, the elderly statesman responsible for the book of Ecclesiastes. The other, like Dr. Mutereros, is of African origins. You have likely heard it. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Now, like all good proverbs, this one is old. Old enough that no one quite remembers who first said it. But one of the very famous people to whom it is credited is Kwame Nkrumah. Now, Kwame Nkrumah was a pivotal leader in the fight for independence in Ghana in 1957. A man who would eventually become Ghana's first prime minister and president. This man embodied a vision that gave his country the will to step into their true calling. A past student of mine, Agnes Nigini Langat, you might know her. She teaches right now at Kenya's Evangelical University, Kenya Highlands Evangelical University, and she speaks of this man with awe, and I can see why. Nkrumah challenged his native Ghanaians, stating if they were to ever be free, all Africa must be free. He told his people that if we as Africans, not as tribal or national groups, but as Africans, are going to secure our independence and plot out our own course on this planet, we are going to have to go about doing that together. He told his people, we do not look east, we do not look west, we look forward. And he assured his people that the forces that united them were far more powerful and intrinsic than the, quote, superimposed influences that keep us apart. And as a result, he became a powerful voice for the vision of an economically and politically united and independent Africa. This was Nkrumah's hard-won insight regarding the nature of real success for the people that he loved. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Now, the wisdom literature of Israel is designed to collect sayings like these, short, memorizable capsules of hard-earned insight birthed from the experiences of the old and the battle-scarred, the ones who have actually faced down the dragons and lived to tell the tale, for the sake of those of us who are not so old and not so battle-scarred. And so the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes is the same fellow. He is both. He is old and he is battle-scarred. And he offers us his hard-won insight regarding the nature of real success for the people that he loved. And he has something very similar to say. Two are better than one because they have a better return for their labor. And if either of them falls, one will help the other up. But woe to the one who falls when there is no companion to lift him. Moreover, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And although one can overpower him who is alone, two 
will be able to stand against the one. Indeed, a cord of three strands will not quickly be torn apart. Now, when I teach wisdom lit, I like to compare it to the self-help literature, yeah, that abounds in our modern lives. You've seen my subtitle. Yeah, you like that, huh? How not to be stupid the rest of your life. All right, you got to remember that I teach undergrads at this point. And if you want to hook that fish, you need to get him into the boat very fast. Okay. So um, I particularly like the comparison with Stephen Covey's famous Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change. Because of course, as is Covey's ambition, Wisdom literature also offers us, quote, a holistic, integrated, principle-centered approach for solving personal and professional problems. Yeah, it does. And like Covey, wisdom literature makes use of penetrating insights and pointed anecdotes to reveal a step-by-step -step pathway for living with fairness, integrity, service, and human dignity. Principles that give us the security to adapt to change and the wisdom and power to take advantage of the opportunities that change creates. Now, please do keep in mind that Covey is not the Holy Spirit, and he's kind of a Mormon, too. So <laughs> Covey's book would not have made the canon cut, but I hope that you find the parallel instructive all the same. I also, as you have already seen, love my subtitle. It's my favorite subtitle of any lecture I give, yeah? How not to be stupid all your life. Stupid is, as stupid does, yeah? So indeed, if your goal is not to be stupid for the rest of your life, Wisdom Lit is a worthwhile read. Just plug it away for you guys, that's all. Wisdom Lit, okay, so how does it work? Wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Yes, there will be a quiz when, no, kidding. Um, each explore how a person might exercise the discipline of applying the truth of someone else's lived experience to one's own. Let me say that again. Exercising the discipline of applying the truth of someone else's lived experience to my own. The focus here is productive behavior. In the words of Albert Einstein, any fool can know the point is to understand. So what does wisdom literature want to help us understand? And that, my friends, is what the accreditation agencies call human flourishing these days. It's what centuries of humans have called the good life. And wisdom literature has been collected and preserved to help you and I get there a little faster than we might get there on our own. Now, when I teach, the book of Ecclesiastes in particular, um, which, as you know, is formally a dialogue on the meaning of life. I knew you had that down. I tell my classes that the preacher presented to us as Solomon himself is a mix of Britney Spears, O.J. Simpson, Justin Bieber, Elvis Presley, and Miley Cyrus. What could I possibly mean by this? The idea is that Koheleth, the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, is the guy-gal in Israel's experience who actually did have it all. And like Brittany, Justin, Miley, and OJ, 
found that having it all almost destroyed him. The difference is that unlike our contemporary luminaries, when King Solomon ascends that golden ladder of ultimate success and looks over that wall that none of us average Janes and Joe can ever hope to climb high enough to see over, that ladder that we all suppose will lead us to a paradise of power and influence and fame and fortune, yeah, that ladder, unlike Brittany and OJ and Justin and Miley, our preacher has the wherewithal to step back from the edge, to climb back down that golden ladder and tell the rest of us poor, mediocre souls that there is nothing up there. There is nothing up there. This guy had it all. He had all the money, sex, and power that any of us could ever wish for. And he tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that it is all a mirage. Do not spend your life trying to seize it because it will destroy your life. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Hevel, openness, wind, nothing. And because of who he is, and because of what he's accomplished, these people in his audience actually pause in their hell-bent, breakneck pursuit of success for at least a moment, and they listen. Folks, this morning, I would like to challenge us to do the same. Two are better than one because they have a better return for their labor. If either of them falls, the other one will help them up. But woe to the one who falls, and there is no companion to lift him. In this, in this chapter, the preacher has just finished reflecting on the absurdity of working yourself to death for wealth. Well, we academic types, preachers, we don't have to worry about that. Wealth isn't really an option. But I think you get the point. Yeah. That's the first half of chapter four. Here, Koheleth has concluded that the pursuit of wealth, success, excellent grades, admittance to the graduate program of your dreams, the perfect post, publications, speaking engagements, notoriety, influence, political positions by oneself does not fulfill. To put it bluntly, he concludes that work in isolation stinks, that beating out the pack to grab the brass ring alone leaves the winner the loser, and that real success, real influence, and notoriety actually comes from sharing the journey. Hmm. Now, as I read these lines, I hear the echoes of the rigorous realities of life in a subsistence economy in Iron Age Israel. This surely would have been the experience of most of the preacher's audience. The man and woman living in a village of two to 300 who spent their lives scrambling to get the food that their extended family needed on their rain-fed piece of property, yeah, following their flocks through the hill country, hoping to survive the next pregnancy, hoping there will be a next pregnancy, and always living just on the edge of just enough. Guys, in this context, the catastrophic consequences of a shepherd trembling off an escarpment and finding himself with a shattered bone at the bottom of a wadi were broadly known, and they were feared. 
Long, cold nights in the high country could be miserable. Journeys to nearby towns in the unguarded back roads of the southern Levant could be fatal. And the story of the Good Samaritan and the desperate judge and uh, desperate host in Judges 19, they testify to this fact. Yeah, an armed ruffian could easily overpower a traveler alone, steal his animal and his assets, but a traveler with a companion, ah, well, two can resist the one. So as many have noted over the years, this passage in Ecclesiastes celebrates the practical advantages of companionship. But I'd like to add a little more skin to the game. I think that these practical advantages are a bit more than just practical. I think the preacher's intent, like so much of wisdom literature, is both pedagogical and corrective. Why corrective? Well, I think the preacher is confronting a lie, a lie that had become a societal norm, a lie his audience had embraced as truth, and that is go fast, go alone. But the preacher says that that is not truth. Rather, he has learned the hard way that that truth destroys. And in my old age, I've decided to start listening to the preacher. For those of you who have known me more than 20 years, you are not at all surprised to hear that I've been described more than once as the girl who walks like she's on her way to a fire. Yep. <laughs> I walk fast, I talk fast, and I take on way more than I should. I demand a lot of those around me, and I demand even more of myself. Yeah. I work a lot, I don't sleep a lot, and I have been trained to go fast. This is the value system of our disciplines, yeah? Real scholars sprint to the head of the pack, brag the, grab the brass ring, and leave the less foot, fleet of foot behind. Our job is to quickly identify the weakest link and more quickly disassociate ourselves from the same. We work hard, keep our shoulders to the wheel, never ask for help, and never reveal our weaknesses. I've been trained to strike before my opponent can draw his wand and leave him in the dust. I've been trained to go alone. And the fact that I've spent most of my professional life in a world dominated by men, well, going alone has not always been an active choice. We'll talk about that during lunch. <laughs> but always, in the midst of that ethos, my heart would always somehow somewhere hear the voice of the preacher. Two are better than one. Now, it hasn't been very difficult for me to take the preacher's words and kind of consign them to the periphery. You know the periphery where all those warm, nostalgic thoughts and values that I don't actually practice live? That periphery? Yeah. And I'm going to guess that the preacher's original audience did much the same. So the preacher pushes his point. Can you hear him. Two are better than one because they have a better return for their labor. You want to make as much as you can, right? The preacher asks. Well, do you realize that if two men work a field, the work is done more than twice as quickly? And the extent of the plowing and planting is actually broader than what one man could have done given the same amount of time. Do you realize that when two students work together to study for the big exam, 
that both wind up learning more and doing better than they could have done alone. Two have a better return for their labor, the preacher says. Moreover, if either of them falls while following the flock, one will help the other up. Are you listening? A person who works alone doesn't get to make mistakes. She doesn't have the capacity to bounce back. No one has got her back when she's blindsided. And if that bone is broken, woe to the one who falls when there is no companion to lift her up. Furthermore, unlike what I've been taught, two traveling the same road is not a waste of resources. Because if two lie down together, they both keep warm. How can one be warm alone? And if the worst happens, and it usually does, although one can overpower him who is alone, two will be able to hold their ground. Indeed, the preacher, quoting an even older proverb, a cord made of three strands cannot be quickly torn apart. A cord made of three strands can't be quickly torn apart. I've heard that somewhere. Well, as Schaefer first argued back in 1967, this proverb probably makes its first appearance in the epic tale of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Hey, the Sumerian version, yeah? Um, maybe this Avenger image will catch your attention a little better. <laughs> same story, same idea. Okay, Gilgamesh encourages his friend Enkidu that together, they can turn the tide. The two men will not die. The towed boat will not sink. A tow rope of three strands cannot be cut. If you help me, I will help you. What of ours can anyone carry off? Now, my dear friend at Wheaton College, Adam Miglio, he is the resident Assyriologist at Wheaton College. I think everyone should have a resident Assyriologist, don't you? Yeah, well, Adam tells me that Schaefer might have overplayed his hand a bit. Because once we look at that language a little more clearly, maybe that's not exactly what it says, but it does communicate the predictable mobility of a proverb. Um, a cord made of three strands cannot be quickly torn apart. A tow rope of three strands cannot be cut. And the practical application of truth to our lives, then as far back as Gilgamesh, is that two, even three, are better than one. So what is wisdom? In my older age, I've begun to hear the preacher. Contrary to the traumas of my youth, contrary to the socialization that I received in the Ivy League, contrary to the values of my society and my guild, the preacher is right. Two are better than one. So future pastors and academics, and all y'all current academics and pastors, can we pause for a moment this morning and ask ourselves, what is really driving me? Is it to catch the eye and ear of your professor, your bishop, that coveted journal? Is it to prove to him or to her that you are the best of the best at any cost, then may I suggest that what you think you want is to go fast. And I do think that Koheleth would tell us that sometimes we need to go fast. 
But what might it look like if what you really wanted was to go far? Are you aware that the people sitting in this room right now are the future pastors, principals, missionaries, deans, presidents, and bishops of this world? Do you realize that going with them is far more to your advantage than going alone? What does that look like? Well, one thing is it looks like showing up for your compatriots. That's one thing. I know for myself, I can get so task-oriented that I can spend the entire day hammering away at my computer, absorbed in my books, and getting myself to chapel to hear a colleague preach or to ask a fellow student to coffee or a meal can feel like a tooth extraction, yeah? But as our ethicist, Christine Pohl, may her beautiful soul rest in peace, as she teaches us hospitality, transparency, truth-telling, accountability, and teammanship are the stuff of which a community is made. And there is nothing, there is nothing that you will gain in seminary that is more valuable than the person who is sitting next to you right now. Let me say that again. There is nothing you will gain in seminary that is more valuable than the relationships represented in this room. Your degree, that's great. Your GPA, hey, I'm a prof, keep it high. <laughs> but the treasure that you actually seek is sitting right next to you. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. We will go far if we go together. It also means, in the words of Stephen Covey, that interdependence, win-win thinking, the sharing and combining of gifts as opposed to the competition of them is the road to success. Paul says it this way, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is only one body, only one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And to each one of us, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Or Romans 12, we though we are many, are one body in Christ and individually parts of another. Two are better than one. Folks, when I face a task with you, I have hope that between the two of us, we can do something bigger than either of us could have done alone. When I travel you with you, there is a joy and a confidence in the journey that I would never have alone. So I have decided that I would rather go far than fast because I believe that I am far more assured of my destination if I go with you than if I go alone. And moreover, I am assured that when I get to my destination, I will not only want the people with whom I have labored with me, I would like them to still be speaking to me as well. So Kwame Nkrumah assured his people that the forces that united them were far more powerful and intrinsic than the superimposed influences that keep us apart. That if they as Africans, not as tribal or national groups, but as Africans, we're going to plot out their own course on this planet. We are going to have to confront that task together. I believe that Kohelet and Paul and indeed our elder brother Jesus would have the same thing to say. What would it look like 
if we learned to go together, if we shared both the work and the journey, if we celebrated each other's gifts, slowed down a bit for those who journey at a lesser pace, and stood at the ready always to defend our companions on the journey. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, like perhaps to the uttermost parts of the earth, go together. <laughs>